Well, thank you, Damien and Catherine, for reading. And uh, great to be with you. Again, it's been a while since I've been here. Uh, if you haven't met me before, my name's Mike. I'm uh, one of the pastors at church here, and usually at morning church. But of late, I've been at uh, 4.30 church at Bexley North uh, with Josh, who you'll, you'll meet uh, shortly. But it's a great pleasure uh, to be back with you guys and to be able to finish uh, 1 Corinthians 15 with you. And I don't know if you thought this as Psalm 90 was read out, but Psalm 90, it's such a humbling psalm. Uh, I've heard it three times read out today. Uh, it's a great psalm. It's a humbling psalm and yet so encouraging as well. So I'm going to pray in light of Psalm 90 and then we're going to have a look at 1 Corinthians 15. Let me pray. Well, Lord, you have indeed been our refuge in every generation. And we thank you, Father, that you've been our refuge most fully in Jesus, your Son. And we pray this evening, uh, as we think about Christ, as we think about all you've done in Jesus, your Son, for your glory and for our good, that we might be changed evermore to live like Christ, that we might hear the words that you speak to us and be transformed in the image of your Son, glorifying you in all that we do for your kingdom's sake and for our good. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you've been here over the last few weeks, you'll know that we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians 15. This is week number three, as Troy mentioned. But if, like me, you've been on holidays, some people said this morning that my face looks a bit tanned. It's been beautiful autumn sunshine. I've been up on the Central Coast surfing lots with my little boy, which has been fun. So I thought I'd kick off by reminding you of what we've looked at so far in 1 Corinthians 15, because maybe you've been on holidays like me. Uh, And what the Apostle Paul has been doing in this chapter is proclaiming again the basics of the gospel to the Corinthians. And I'm going to make you do some work as we start. So just look at verse 3. So go back to the beginning of chapter 15, verse 3. And if you look quickly there at verse 3, the beginning of the chapter, you see that the basics of the gospel are that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that Christ was buried... And that Christ was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. These are the basics of the gospel. But what Paul wants to do and and drive home in this chapter is for the people of Corinth to see the truth of the resurrection. uh, The truth of being raised from the dead. That this is a true and real thing. Why? Well, have a look at verse 12. Chapter 15, verse 12. Look down there. Because some in Corinth, they were saying there is no resurrection. You don't resurrect from the dead. There is no being raised from the dead. There's no such thing. To even think such a thing, well, that's just absurd. Dead people don't rise. And that kind of thinking is just as alive and well in our world today. I remember when I first became a Christian, about 16, 17, uh, and I was in year 12. I was speaking to this girl in my year group about Jesus. And then we came to the question of death. And I asked her, well, what do you think happens when you die? And for her, the answer was pretty simple. You die. You get buried, that's it. Uh, Or take the uh, British philosopher Bertrand Russell, if you haven't heard about him before. He's an old guy that was around in the 1950s who liked to smoke a pipe and say wise things. He said this up on the screen. He said, I believe that when I die, I shall rot. Uh, It's very lovely. There's an encouraging quote to put on one's tombstone. But I must say, at one level, fair enough. Uh, There there are all sorts of uncertainties in this life, uh, all sorts of things that we can't predict. I mean, COVID has shown that. We we don't know what's going to come. But perhaps the only certainty all of us can agree on, all of humanity can agree on, is that one day we die. 
And almost universally, we all agree that when we die, we rot. Our bodies decay, they turn to dust, unless you've been cremated already. Uh, We even say it in funeral services. If you've ever been to a funeral service, the, the minister will say, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. You see, except for those few hundred kind of weirdos that have been chronogenically frozen, when we die, we rot. That's what happens. That's what we know. And so it's no surprise, really, that, that some in Corinth were, were saying, well, there is no resurrection. How, how could you be so dumb to think dead people rise from the dead? Their bodies are, are rotten. And it's no wonder that when Paul preached in Athens, so Paul was preaching to the Greeks in Athens, he was preaching about the resurrection, and the Greeks, they didn't believe in material and the afterlife. They just thought we'd stay spiritual things. And when he preached about the resurrection, they thought, you're a goose, Paul, as if that happens. And today it's no different. People mock the idea. How can any modern day rationally minded person believe in dead and rotten corpses being raised to life? It's absurd. It's it's wishful thinking. It's to be mindless to believe that. But the irony of 1 Corinthians 15 is how mindless it is to reject the truth of resurrection. You see, that's Paul's argument. He's trying to say, no, no, it's absurd if you reject this. That's his argument. That's what he's making throughout this chapter. So in our first week, week one, when we looked at the beginning of this chapter, Paul was saying to those in Corinth, he was saying, hold on. If you reject the the truth of resurrection, that actually you're rejecting the truth of Christ. You're, You're rejecting the gospel message I proclaim to you. Because in verses 12 to 19, Paul reminds them that actually when I came to you, people of Corinth, I preached Christ and him risen from the dead. And we, I did that because it's fact, Paul says, because Jesus' own disciples saw Jesus as, as a risen man. Uh, Paul says that 500 different people at one time saw Jesus in his resurrected body. You don't believe me, Paul says, well, go ask them. They're still alive. Some of them are still here. Go ask them about it. And then Paul says, even I have seen the risen Christ myself. And so if Jesus has been resurrected, well, then you can't simply reject the idea of resurrection. It's not absurd. It's been done. It's happened. It's fact. It's historical. That's the first point. And in our second week, uh, in the second part of this chapter, in verses 20 to 34, Paul goes on to explain how Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. So have a look at verse 20. Verse 20. You see there, Christ is called the first fruits. And uh, if you imagine a crop or a harvest, uh, if you know anything about farming, which I know very little, but I know this, uh, the first fruits, they're the first bits of fruit that come out of the ground. And when you see that the first bit of fruit come out of the ground, well, then you can be confident that more will appear, that the crop will follow. You can be confident that the harvest will come. And so Paul's saying, Jesus has been resurrected. Jesus is the first fruit. And so now you can know that you too will be raised from the dead. You too will be resurrected. And so Paul in this chapter is showing those in Corinth that the idea of resurrection isn't some absurd, mindless, wishful thinking. He's actually saying to them, think about it. Use your mind. Actually use your mind. Christ is risen. You can't deny the fact. People have seen him. It's a fact of history. And Jesus' resurrection means our resurrection. And if you have a look at verse 30, look at verse 30. 
Paul reasons from, from those verses that he kind of says, why do you think I'm willing to die for proclaiming Jesus as risen from the dead? If I didn't see the risen Christ, if I didn't think he was resurrected, then why would I proclaim that as truth? You see, that is absurd. You see, why would anyone bother with Jesus and Christianity if there is no resurrection of the dead? You'd be a fool to follow Jesus if he did not rise. He's just another dead man. And there are billions of dead men. And you'd be just as foolish to remain a Christian if you believed that you too would not rise. Because why bother following Christ if this life is all there is? And that's the all or nothing nature of this chapter. If Jesus is risen, if we will be risen too, then brothers and sisters, give yourself fully to the Lord and to his good work in this life because this life is found in Christ. But if there is no resurrection, if, if the dust of Jesus' body lies somewhere in some tomb in, in Israel or, or Jerusalem, or, or if our bodies too will just turn to dust for all eternity, well then make verse 32 the dictum of your life. Look at verse 32. Paul says, if the dead are not raised, well, let us eat and drink for tomorrow... We die. That's it. Um, some of you might be too young to remember this. Uh, Rob Wolf isn't. Sorry to pick you out, Rob. <laughs> but uh, I'm not going too far back. Don't be, don't be too worried. But uh, in the 90s, uh, Pepsi was like a big drink. It was like the popular one, almost maybe more popular than Coke and all that sort of stuff. And they had a big ad campaign in the 90s that was live life to the max. That was kind of their, their big ad campaign. And the idea was this life is all there is, so live it to the max. Or maybe you've heard of the water slide, the life as a water slide idea. So, you know, life is like a water slide and you just need to enjoy the ride as you go down the water slide and enjoy the bends and try to have as much fun and splish and splash as much as you can. Because once you get to the bottom, well, at the bottom lies the black pool of death. And that's it. The end. And if that's true, then actually that's reasonable. That's rational. If there's no resurrection of the dead, no eternal life, no God, no creator, no innate morality, then what we are doing now, sitting in this building, thinking about Jesus, talking about the Bible, talking about God, it's in vain. We're wasting our time. You see, what we should be doing is what the rest of the world is trying to do, trying to make the most of this short thing we call life, trying to experience as much as we can, do as much as we can, buy as much as we can for again tomorrow, Black pool of death, die. That's it. But you see, Paul's point throughout has been, no, no, it's not mindless to believe in the resurrection. It's actually very reasonable. It's actually very historical. If only you take the time to stop and think about it. And the last argument that Paul tackles in chapter 15 and and today's uh, sermon topic is the question of verse 35. So have a look at verse 35. Because he raises a question that people uh, uh, rather really are asking, or some might be asking, and the question is, how were the dead raised? And if bodies kind of just rot and turn to dust and decompose, well, what kind of body will they be when they come? And judging by Paul's answer to this question in verse 36, he calls them foolish for asking their question. Judging by the answer, they weren't asking because they truly wanted to know what happens when you resurrect from the dead. They weren't actually interested in the answer. They were mocking Paul as if to say, you can't possibly have us believe that the rot that is a dead and decomposed body could possibly raise back to life and be a glorious body. Rubbish. 
And you can imagine the mockery today. You know, just think of any of the, the kind of modern day zombie movies. You know, what would it be like? We'll be like one of those zombies, right? That come out of the grave and we'll be pale and we'll be missing an arm here and missing a leg over there and limping all about the place. Is that what it'll be like for the rising of the dead? And what of those who turn to dust? You see, it's an accusation. It's absurd, they're saying, to think of resurrection. But Paul here, he gives two reasons, two explanations for why this isn't some mindless belief. And in his first reason, he uses this analogy of a seed uh, and a plant. So have a look with me from verse 35 again. Go back to verse 35. So Paul says, but someone will say, how were the dead raised? And what kind of body will they have when they come? Foolish one. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you are not sowing the future body, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain. And Paul there, he's making a pretty simple point. He's saying, think about a seed, you know, a tiny seed that you plant in the ground. Think about the seed and think about its plant. See, the seed looks nothing like the plant. They look completely different. And the seed, it's small in comparison to the plant. It's tiny. It's lifeless. It's dry. And yet when that seed falls to the ground from a tree or a plant or whatever it is, and when it falls to the ground and when it buries itself, or when someone buries that seed in the ground and when the germination process starts, well, within days it starts to sprout. Within weeks that seed turns into a plant. Within years, it becomes a great tree. And uh, just to give you some visual aids, uh, up on the screen there are some seeds. There are, they're seeds from a giant uh, sequoia tree. Um, I hope I've pronounced that correctly for people who care about this stuff more than I do. I'm not much of a gardener. A garden for me is just get rid of everything because then you don't have to maintain it. Uh, actually, I love jacaranda trees. Who like jacaranda trees? You know which ones are jacarandas? The purple ones, they're very pretty. And I love them when they're in my neighbor's yard because I can appreciate how pretty they are, but then all that stuff doesn't fall in my yard. I don't have to clean it. It's great. But look at the seeds. They're small, tiny, lifeless, dry. And yet those seeds turn into that tree. You see, that's a, a, a giant sequoia. And uh, it's 100 years old, that tree. So it's not very old as far as trees go. And it's 10 stories high. And it's a young one. These trees can be up to 10 stories in circumference. And so when you think of the seed that was the picture before, and that tree, that's marvelous. That's glorious. That, that a tree so grand and so great can come from a seed, from something so insignificant as a speck. And so, is a resurrected body that absurd? Is the thought of a, of a buried body being transformed into something glorious something different resurrected is that unheard of and what paul is saying is no just think of the order of things in this world think of god's creation see look at verse 38 verse 38 but god gives it the seed a body as he wants and to each of the seeds its own body not all flesh is the same flesh there is one flesh for humans another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. And so Paul is saying if only people would stop and consider the created order of things, how God has determined each different seed to become its own body, 
How God has determined all sorts of different types of flesh, human, animals, birds, fish. If people stop to consider that God has ordered this world to have transformation and that transformation can be in all sorts of different body experiences, just think again, the seed to the plants, the embryo to the person, we were all embryos once, the tadpole to the frog. Think of all those types of transformations and then the truth of the resurrection. Well, is that so absurd? Of course it's not. Of course God can do that. Don't be so silly, Paul is saying to Corinth. Don't be so foolish. That rotting, dead corpse can be and will be transformed. See, look at verse 42. Verse 42. Paul says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Yes, sown in corruption, sown as a, as a, as a dying body, a dead body, but raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, but raised in glory. Sown in weakness. There's, there's nothing weaker than a, than a lifeless, rotting, dead body, yet raised in power. And verse 44, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. And with verse uh, 44 there, Paul moves into his second explanation, his, his second reason why the resurrection of the dead is not some absurd idea. And that is because the natural body will be raised a spiritual body. It's not going to be the same thing anymore. It's not dust anymore. It will be transformed. And this is, uh, I think, where we often bring too many of our own questions to the Bible when we think about our resurrected bodies or what the resurrection will be like. Uh, you see, we often try to wonder different versions of what, of what versions of ourselves the resurrection age will be. So when I'm resurrected, will, will I be the 10-year-old Mike? Because being 10 was pretty fun. It was pretty cruisy. Or will I be the 30-year-old me? Uh, because that was kind of the, the, the physical, kind of the peak of physical life for me, late 20s. You guys are not quite there yet for lots of years, but when you get there, that's it, downhill from there. Uh, sorry for those who are over 30. Uh, or will it be the 70-year-old me, you know, wise and learned and, and have seen things and know things? Will I have my light-colored hair like when I was a child? Or will I have my adult hair? Some men, I think, will be thinking at this point, well, will I have hair again? I don't care what color it is. Give me hair, I'll take it. You see, but the Bible just isn't interested in those sorts of questions. We always ask those sorts of questions. But it's not what the Bible is interested in. You see, some people ask those questions out of mockery. Yeah, come on, resurrection. Come on. What, what, what will we be? Will we all be the same age? Will we all be the same height? Will we all be the same weight and the same whatever else? Uh, it's the mockery of the Sadducees. If you remember from Luke's gospel, the Sadducees don't believe in resurrection and they mock Jesus. And they say to Jesus, all right, there's this woman and she has a husband and husband number one dies. So she marries another man and husband number two dies. She marries another man. And by the end, she's married seven different husbands who've all died. Uh, hint to the men, if you meet a woman like that, don't marry her because you'll probably die. But then she dies. And the question to the Sadducees is, well, who will be her husband in the resurrection age when she's resurrected? How stupid. She'll have seven husbands. That doesn't make sense. To which Jesus really answers by saying, wrong question. Don't bring your absurd, silly questions to the Bible. Jesus says there won't be marriage or being given in, in marriage in the resurrection age. And so all of our questions of, of curiosity around this resurrection body idea are all sorts of questions that get in the way of some people actually believing in resurrection from the dead. 
Well, Paul says they're the wrong questions anyway. You see, the resurrection body will not be like our natural bodies now. They'll be different. So you have a look at verse 44. Verse 44. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, the one from the earth and made of dust, became a living being. But the last Adam, that is Jesus, the one from heaven, he became a life-giving spirit. And so as we think of, of our resurrected bodies and the resurrection life that Jesus brings, we have to think differently to our earthly bodies. It, it won't be of, of the first Adam anymore, of the earth, of the dust. It won't be of this earth. It will be a different type of body, one that will be fit for the new creation, uh, one that will, be, that will no longer age and no longer decay and no longer get weary and no longer get tired. One that will be transformed and be, and be glorious. And Paul makes this really clear in verse 50. So have a look at verse 50. Paul writes verse 50. Brothers, I tell you this, flesh and blood, that is our earthly bodies, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And corruption, again, our earthly bodies in their natural state are corrupted. And corruption cannot inherit incorruptibility. The, the incorruption, the things of the new creation. Because a change needs to take place. So verse 51, Paul continues. Verse 51, listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep. That is, we will not all die. But we will all be changed. In a moment, in the blinking of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. And what Paul is saying there is that on that day when Jesus returns, when he comes back for the beginning of the resurrection age, all who have already died in Christ, they will be raised incorruptible. They will have new spiritual bodies. And all of those who are still alive when Jesus returns, see, Jesus could come back tonight. He could come back tomorrow. He could come back next year. We don't know. But if he comes back and we're still alive, well, Paul is saying, just like that, we'll be transformed. No longer natural bodies, but spiritual bodies, instantly in the blinking of an eye. And we'll no longer have these limited earthly bodies, but spiritual ones, one perfected and ready for the new creation. And at this point, don't uh, think of a kind of floaty spirit type of existence. Uh, that's not what Paul means by spiritual. Um, again, I'm not sure if you remember these old ads. I think it, this says that I've watched too much kind of commercial television when I was younger and saw too many ads. But there used to be this old ad for uh, Philadelphia cheese. It's that cheese spread thing that you can buy. And uh, there was this ad where, you know, all these people were sitting on clouds because they died. And for some reason, they'd grown wings and everything was white. Uh, and everything was just floaty, and you just kind of floated around aimlessly. That was the picture of heaven that this uh, commercial ad uh, gave, which I think is the most boring depiction ever of the new creation. just sounds like eternal torment to me, white and just floating around endlessly, especially if you don't like Philadelphia cheese, because that's all they could eat in this place. But you see, Paul is saying, no, no, the, the resurrection body, it's still a body. It's not just ghosts and floating around in the clouds in the sky no it's a physical body see look again at verse 44 it's not just you'll get a spiritual it's you'll get a spiritual body that's physical material 
And if you just skip down uh, to verse 53, just look at verse 53, you'll see that it's still your body. Did you notice that in verse 53? It says, it's this, this our current corruptible bodies that must be transformed and clothed with the incorruptible. And it's this current mortal body that must be transformed and clothed with immortality. And so there there, there are a few things here that we need to hold together. When our resurrection bodies come, there will be different types of bodies. They'll be so transformed. So glorious, so much more glorious than they currently are, like the seed compared to that great tree. And yet, as different as our resurrected bodies will be, they are still our bodies. It's still you. It's it's still physically you that will be transformed. Uh, And I don't know about you, and maybe, again, this is something of uh, my stage of life, but I really look forward to that resurrection day. Uh, I'm relatively young, but my knees are sore. Uh, I keep doing my back in every week when I play soccer. Just ask Askin and Jono and the other boys. Uh, my eyesight's getting worse and worse. I don't know if you've realized, but when I first came to church here a couple of years ago, I wasn't wearing glasses. Now I wear glasses all the time when I preach. So if you fall asleep, I can see you now, so don't do it. Uh, you see, I look forward to a perfected, immortal spiritual body. I know for lots of you guys, that feels so far away that you don't think about it. But trust me, you will. And really, it's what our whole world wants. It's what our world wants. Our world is obsessed with trying to minimize the effects of aging. Uh, People use the gym like never before. Uh, People use anti-aging products from the deepest, darkest mud pits of Africa just to starve off their wrinkles. Uh, There's plastic surgery like never before. Dental surgery like never before. If you start to lose your hair, you get hair implants now. And yet, the secret to immortality... And the secret to that eternal life that is in our hearts that we so desire because nobody wants to die. Nobody wants to cease existing. We all want eternal life and everyone's looking for the secret and yet it's no secret at all. You see, it's found in Jesus Christ. It's found in the opening verses of this chapter that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. And that all who are forgiven in Christ, they will be made alive and perfected in him. Do you know, one of the things that excites me the most about the new creation, besides having a physically well body, uh, is just being able to relate with everyone in our perfected state. So just imagine, never again will we misunderstand each other because we will have perfected understanding. And never again will we lack the energy to serve each other. You know, a lot of the times we truly want to love one another. We want to serve each other, but we're tired or we've had a hard week or we've had a hard day. And so it's hard to gain the energy to want to serve each other, but not in the new creation. We won't have limited earthly bodies anymore. I also think of my brothers and sisters who in this earthly body have intellectual disabilities. You see, our brothers and sisters who have intellectual impairments in this earthly life, well, when they're resurrected and have glorious new bodies like all of the rest of us, no longer will it be hard to converse together. No longer will we struggle to understand each other. We will have glorious conversation and gloriously praise our God together for all eternity in perfection. You see, all of us will be relating and fellowshipping in ways that are far grander than what it's like now. And it's pretty good now. And it'll be so much better 
Because no longer are we hindered by our earthly bodies of sin and decay and corruption and dishonor, weakness and bodies of earthly Adam. No, our perfected spiritual bodies will be fit for the perfected new creation and it will be glorious. So good. And all of it because of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as Paul wraps up his teaching on the resurrection in this chapter, he really ends where he began, with Jesus. See, have a look at verse 54. Look from verse 54. When this corruptible, this again earthly body is clothed with incorruptibility... And this mortal is clothed with immortality when that change occurs, when we have our resurrected spiritual bodies, well, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Now, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this, the worst thing this world can throw at us is death. There's nothing beautiful in death. I don't know, uh, again, if lots of you have experienced this or not. Maybe you have with, with grandparents or great-grandparents. But when you watch someone uh, decay, when you watch a person grow weary, when you watch a person breathe their last, it's an ugly thing. It really is. Perhaps the only thing that's worse than that is someone dying at a young age. And yet Paul says that isn't the worst because the sting of death is sin. It's to pass from this life as a guilty sinner before God, destined for the resurrection of judgment. But Paul says not so for those who belong to Jesus. Not so for those who, as Paul started the chapter, believe that Jesus Christ died for their sins. Because for those people who die in Christ, well, the resurrection of life awaits. Transformation and perfection is what lies ahead. Uh, There's a saying, if you've heard it before, it says, uh, the saying is, death is the great equalizer. Death is, is the great equalizer that makes us all the same. Well, not for the Christian. See, for the follower of Jesus, death has no victory over us. Only at the Christian funeral can you be at the the, the bedside of a fellow believer who's died with tears in your eyes because it is sad, with grief in your heart because we do grieve, but standing there with words of victory, almost mocking death. You know, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? You have not won with this person. So this one, this, this departed brother or sister, they're victorious in our Lord Jesus Christ. They are forgiven in him. They're part of the resurrection of life. See, no wonder Paul declares, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to finish very briefly now by looking at the last verse of this chapter, verse 58. Because there Paul draws all that he said to a conclusion. And again, he wants, he wants us to see the reason of what he's saying. He wants us to understand his logic. Paul's saying, if Jesus has been raised, if all those who belong to Jesus, if they also will be, will be raised in the resurrection of life, then that changes everything. If the dead are raised, if uh, this life is not the end, if it's not the, the water slide of life with the pool of death at the end, then look at what Paul says in verse 58. If the dead are raised, then verse 58, therefore, my dear brothers, be steadfast 
immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And there are two things that Paul, I think, wants us to learn from that. And the first is that we must remain steadfast and immovable in our faith in Christ. Uh, it's really where Paul began the chapter. He, he, he said, you've begun by standing in the gospel that I preached to you. So keep standing in that gospel. Be steadfast in the gospel. Christ is risen. You can know that for sure. The dead will be raised. You will be transformed. Death is defeated. So be immovable. Keep your faith. Keep going with Christ. That's the first thing. But in light of that, because what matters infinitely and eternally more than anything else is belonging to Jesus, then the second thing is always excel in the Lord's work. Always excel in God's work of saving a people through Jesus, his son. And that happens as we build each other up to grow ever more like Jesus and and keep faithful to Christ. And that happens as we share Jesus with other people. You see, I do uh, lots of things in my life that are ultimately in vain. Uh, I was trying to think of what some of those things are in particular. And uh, perhaps one of the vainest things I do is wash my car. I like cars, but you wash a car and it's, it's in vain. The next day it's dirty again. The bird poos on it, or bat poo, or whatever it is, or it rains. Waste of time. Uh, I've got this tree branch at the front of my house that sits over the front gate, and I always have to keep trimming it because it keeps falling over the front gate so people knock their heads when they walk in. Uh, I get my hair cut. I hate getting my hair cut, but thanks for noticing. Uh, like all of you, I do life admin. I've got to pay bills. I've got to fill out paperwork. Uh, I do work admin. Sometimes people think that uh, pastors like Troy and myself and Josh, that we spend all the hours of our day reading God's word or teaching people from God's word. It's not true. There's stacks of admin that's involved that we have to do. And a lot of the time that feels in vain. You see, we do all sorts of things in this earthly body that are necessary and yet are ultimately in vain. Ultimately mean nothing. We sleep only to get tired again. We exercise only to be unfit again. We go to the doctors to get prescription medicine to make us better only to get sick again. Uh, maybe you don't know this yet, but you'll learn to know this more as you grow older. But we, you know, we work to earn the money to buy the food, to feed our bodies, to gain the energy, to go to work, to earn the money, to feed our bodies, to gain the energy. And on and on it goes. All of it necessary, much of it good, but ultimately in vain. Yes, it's a necessity of this life, of this earthly body we are in. And often it's a good necessity. It's a gift of God. God gives us good things to enjoy and we can be thankful to God for enjoying the bits of creation that he's given us to enjoy. But man, it's hard and often in vain. But Paul says, whatever you and whatever I do to build each other up, to remain steadfast and immovable in Christ, that's never in vain. When you pray for your brother and sister in Christ, that's never in vain. When you come to church and pray with one another, when we sing praises to each other, to our God together, when we speak the word of God to each other to keep us going in Christ, that's never in vain. As parents share the gospel with their kids, that's never in vain. When you're bold and share Jesus with your friends or your family or your work colleagues or people at university or people at school, as you live a life of godliness that that causes people to ask you, well, why are you different? Why do you follow Christ? And you simply tell them how you became a Christian. Or you simply tell them why you follow Jesus. Well, that's never in vain. 
If you are someone here today who does not yet follow Jesus, and you give the next weeks, the next months of your life trying to learn more about him, to see if Jesus is the real deal, to see if he is the saviour of the world, that is not in vain. It's very much the opposite. It's the best way you can spend your time. You see, Paul's point is very simple. He's saying whatever we do to build each other up in faith in Christ and whatever we do in sharing Jesus with those around us, those things are never, ever in vain and never a waste of your time because those who are in Christ will be raised to eternal perfection with him. And if we grasp the truth of resurrection in Jesus, then it shapes the priorities of all of our life, for all of this life. And it gives us great joy. Why? Because we know even if death shall come, even if it comes early in life, even if the vain things of this earthly life make life more difficult for you, you have more sickness than others, more toils than others, more suffering than others, more hardship than others, all the vain things that make this life even harder, well, we know that our steadfast and immovable faith in Christ is never in vain, is never a waste of our time. For in Christ, we will all be made alive. And we'll all be perfected in him. Let me pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the resurrection of life through Jesus, your son. We thank you that you haven't left us to die and decay and to cease to be. But you're committed to your creation. You've committed to what you've made. And you're committed to saving a people through Jesus, your son. And we pray, Father, that we might learn in light of the great truth of the resurrection to live this life knowing of the life to come, to live this life laboring for your good and for your will, because what ultimately lasts is those who are in Christ, is those who will enjoy perfected bodies for the new creation for all eternity. Please help us in this, in Jesus, your Son. Amen.